Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now, here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan. Good afternoon, everybody. Midweek. Christmas is coming up. How you doing? You look festive. Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan. Hope your day is going well. Big show today. Two guests today. Dr. Annette Bosworth coming up this hour. By the way, Dr. Annette Bosworth is my doctor. It's full disclosure. I'm not violating HIPAA when I tell you that. Because, you know, she's, she's my doctor. So I can say that. We'll be talking about some of the stuff I sort of hinted at yesterday. We'll be talking about some political stuff with her. We'll talk, we'll talk about patient care under Obamacare. But we'll also be talking about diabetes and the ketogenic diet, something she is an expert on, and that I thought might be interesting to you, not completely political. But hey, you know, it's harder to talk about politics when you're dead. That's my theory. So far, it's proven correct. Second hour, we have the fabulous Cassandra Fairbanks. And we'll be talking with her about the situation with the open, the new red scare, some people are calling it. And we'll be talking about other stories that she's been working on, how the electors failed. So two great guests this hour. Also, as usual, we are taking your calls. 619-924-0786. Now, again, I'm going to chastise you. I can do, I've proven. Have I not proven that I can do the show without callers? I think I have. I'll just keep talking. Look, don't threaten me. I'll just keep talking if I need to. I'm not afraid. I'm not. Despite the fact that I said I'm not afraid, and that's usually something afraid people say, skip that. The point is, I can talk, but I prefer to have you call in So I'm just going to keep playing the call-in bumper forever, basically. Let's try it. Let's hit it early in the show. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. There we go. You're going to hear that bumper five times today. 619-924-0786 if you want to call in. If you want to wait to call in for our guests, too, by the way, if you have questions, feel free. So what's going on in the world today? As I endeavor once again to make you smarter, uh, I'll get more into this when I talk to Cassandra in the second hour. But with the complete fail of the electors, once again, this just shows what a catastrophe show 
This has been for the Democrats. Let's just go over the catastrophe, shall we? The embarrassment. I should do a bumper about this. A little musical intro. Let's go back to the third debate when Hillary Clinton sat there smugly. I think she was standing, technically. But assume, get the image of her sitting there smugly, legs crossed on a throne, perhaps. Is that image fixed firmly in your head? Okay, I'm sorry. That's my fault. But when Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were debating, in the third debate before the election, that Donald Trump won, let's go over that. When Donald Trump was asked, will you accept the results of the election? And Donald Trump said, smartly, I think, well, I'm going to wait and see. In other words, he wasn't going to pre-approve the results of the election if there were shenanigans. But Hillary Clinton threw a fit. I'm not going to say what kind of fit because I don't think I can use that language. Uh, An F fit, a F fit. You can fill in whatever dirty word you want there. I know you can do it. So Hillary Clinton threw a fit and said that Donald Trump refusing right then and there on the stage of the debate before the election happened to say that no matter what, he would agree with the results of the election was a threat to democracy. Now, what have we seen since then? What's happened since then? You know, I don't have to tell you. What we've seen since then is the spectacle of Democrats refusing, and Hillary Clinton herself, not just the Democrats, but the Democrat, the chief Democrat, the big kahuna, the big cheese, Lady Marmalade. I don't even know what I mean by that, but I'll go with it. I think I was using food analogies, and that just slipped in. You may be wondering how Big Kahuna is a food analogy. Big Kahuna Burger, Pulp Fiction, look into it. But the Democrats have just proven to be complete laughable hypocrites on this subject. As Hillary Clinton herself has simply refused to, re- to accept the results of the election. She lost, by the way. I don't know if you saw that, but she lost it. So she loses the election. They like to point out that she won the popular vote. However, if the situation were reversed and the vote and popular vote totals were exactly the same, you know every Democrat would be saying that Trump is a threat to democracy. And by the way, some Republicans would say that, you know, it clearly shows that Hillary doesn't have a mandate. That's, if you want to say that, if you want to say that there are, there's some significance to the fact that Hillary won the popular vote total, even though it was in two states, really, really one state, really California, that's fine. Donald Trump pointed out that he wasn't trying to win the popular vote because, by the way, that's not how you win the presidency. Just breaking that to you, you win through the electoral vote. This was not a shock to anybody. Hillary Clinton is aware of how we choose presidents in the United States, right? I don't think I'm missing anything there. 
she's aware of how the, the voting goes. But alas and alack, both, both alas and alack, the hypocritical Democrats have not acted as though throwing an F fit is somehow a threat to democracy. It is, because what they're trying to do is delegitimize Donald Trump. So first, they started with just a petulant whining. Then came the recount move by Jill Stein. Let's talk about the failures here. Let's stack them up. The recount vote, and it really only got anywhere in a couple of states, because courts threw it out because Jill Stein had no standing. And remember, the Democrats did join in after Jill Stein started it. What happened in Wisconsin? Let's recall. What, what happened in Wisconsin? Guffaw along with me, won't you? In Wisconsin, Donald Trump in the recount picked up more votes. In Michigan, in places like Detroit, which voted heavily Hillary Clinton, alas and alack, they found out that there were voting irregularities in Detroit. So let's just call that, the recount, a complete failure. Then came the idea that somehow the Electoral College would turn against Trump and that en masse electors would abdicate their responsibility, violate their pledge, and vote against Donald Trump. And this in a landslide would save things. Such young, upcoming Hollywood stars, the stars of tomorrow, you know who I'm talking about, people like James Cromwell and Martin Sheen, these young bucks from Hollywood. I think hunks is what the teenage girls call them. Martin Sheen, Martin Sheen was pretty old when he made Apocalypse Now, and that was about 100 years ago. When he played the president on the West Wing, which, by the way, apparently confused him. By the way, if he played the president, my guess is his character was elected through the Electoral College. Just saying. But they made a celebrity spot urging electors not to vote for Donald Trump. Something where they were actually mocked by some of the electors. But how did that work out? Let's just continue down the trail of misery for the Democrats. The recount got Trump more votes. The Electoral College vote, two electors did turn their back on Trump and vote against their pledge. And five voted against Hillary. Five pledged Hillary delegates voted against her. This is the part where you can start laughing. Feel free. Nothing wrong with it. It's okay to chuckle. It's funny. Now, you'd think that these things would send a clear message to Hillary Clinton. And that message, I believe, is this. Whoops. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. And I don't know about calling her sir. I think that's a little over the line. I don't think that's polite. 
But still, the message so far to Hillary Clinton, what was it? You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. So Donald Trump is going to be sworn in as president of the United States on January 20th. Short of Hillary Clinton getting in the proximity of Donald Trump and turning into a thermonuclear warhead herself, Much like Negasonic Teenage Warhead, I'm just going to let that reference lay out there. You'd think that short of that, they would get the message, right? They would get like, okay, well, you lost, but no. So now something new has happened. This is in The Guardian today. I'm going to be writing this up at Breitbart with some additional details. But anti-Trump millennials, this is the headline, anti-Trump millennials plan to open a permanent protest space near the White House. It's the article by Natalie Johnson in The Guardian, the popular British left-wing, openly left-wing publication. Here's the lead. Here's the lead headline on that. A group of millennials who oppose Donald Trump are planning to open a permanent space near the White House next month to protest the president and ensure, quote, that he doesn't succeed. Activists said the so-called Movement House, dubbed District 13 in reference to a defiant community in the Hunger Games series, will be set up on Inauguration Day. So basically, this is like the real-world Commie edition. That's what's going on. This is a group of activists who will be living. They're trying to raise money right now. They're trying to raise $50,000. They've only raised about 10000 as of right now. But it's going to be a group of activists permanently set up, living in a house somewhere near the White House. I wish I would contribute five bucks myself if they would install cameras much like Big Brother or, as I mentioned, real world. It's a little more millennial, so it's a little more real world. Real world, bitter, radical loser edition. They could call it that. But if they would set up cameras, I would watch. This is a show I would watch. Because I'm going to tell you something. And my friend Brandon Darby could speak to this. When you get a bunch of commies under one roof, it never goes well. It never goes well. Because there are two kinds of people who live in those sorts of communal situations. The lazy ones and the ones who do all the work. And most of them are the lazy ones. And what happens is the ones who do all the work very quickly get upset at the lazy ones. And then the hijinks ensue. Then it's funny. I'll have more on this just in a moment. It is 15 minutes past the hour, and you're listening to Radio Stranahan. By all first mention, uh, Lee Stranahan. Cuddly. He's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. Are you tired of the mainstream media and you want to make a difference? 
Do you read the newspapers or watch TV and think that you can do better? This is Lee Stranahan, and that's why I started Citizen Journalism School. You can check it out at citizenjournalismschool.com, and you'll see why I created a place where you can learn to research, write, promote the stories, make a difference, and make a living doing it. I'd like you to go over to citizenjournalismschool.com right now and sign up for a free course I've got for you. It's called Build Your Media Empire, and the course takes you step-by-step online through the things you need to do to set up the platforms so you can share your voice and your stories. I'll show you how to set up material so you can do writing, podcasting, video. Best of all, it's absolutely free. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com and sign up right now. This is Lee Stranahan, to Radio Stranahan. We're going to have Dr. Annette Bosworth call in in just one minute. She'll be our guest this hour. Cassandra Fairbanks next hour. And uh, let me just finish up, though, with one little detail. I'm talking about this millennial fit house that's happening. These millennials, who, by the way, are associated with Color of Change, an institutional left group who I've written about. They, uh, the founders from a group called Millennials for Revolution, I talked about this before the break, they're going to be setting up a house to ensure that President-elect Trump doesn't succeed. By the way, I'm sure that's going to work. It's a great plan, and I'm sure it's going to work. But I didn't know much about I'm not a I'm not a, a youngster. You may have heard this. I'm not a youngster. So I didn't know much about uh, the Hunger Games District 13. So I looked it up a little bit because they said this is going to be it's called District 13, the Millennial Petulant Fit House. That's not their name. It's mine. Is uh, named District 13 after an area of the Hunger Games, after a, a place in the Hunger Games. So this is just from the a, a, the fandom.com site talking about District 13, because I didn't know anything about it. Here's uh, the schedule for people in District 13 in the Hunger Games. And I'm reading here. Every morning, District 13 citizens get a temporary tattoo on the underside of their arm that shows their daily schedule. It displays in 24-hour time where to be and what activities have to be performed at specific times. By the way, here's my prediction. The people doing this, the millennials doing this, will have nowhere near the level of organization that the people in the Hunger Games do. Also, they probably won't be using a bow and arrow. Again, I don't know much, but I've seen the bow and arrow. So that's just a guess. So once again, this is going to be a spectacular fail. I'll be writing more about it at Breitbart later uh, because it's amusing to me and it's fun to mock them. But now, on the line, we have Dr. Annette Bosworth, as I mentioned before, my doctor, and also a nationally recognized expert on subjects such as diabetes, addiction, electronic medical records, all that kind of stuff. Dr. Bosworth, how are you doing today? Hi, Lee. I'm doing great. Great. Great to have you on. appreciate you coming on. So I wanted to have you on because yesterday I was talking a little bit about uh, the diet I've been doing. And diabetes is, uh, well, well, I'm not going to, you, you can, you probably know better than I do. How, I mean, diabetes is a huge issue in the country today, isn't it? It's a, as far as health problems go, 
it's become a gigantic health problem, right? Yes. You want to correct the health care problems in America? Six diabetes, and we've got a huge head start in the cost that not only it takes to care for people with diabetes, but the consequences that surround that that um, that dysfunction of their metabolism and their and their bodies. And so it's it's one of those things where and and we'll get into some of the political aspects of it a little bit, but the the traditional a course of treatment for diabetes has been insulin, right? And mm-hmm. and some some drug stuff. So I've talked about it. You know, I'm I take some insulin. I'm a type 2 diabetic. So I take some insulin and I take metformin. That that's the drugs I right. take. But the thing is, and yep. I mentioned this yesterday. And you you know this cuz you wrote the prescription. So there you go. So I'm not telling you anything <laughs> you don't know. But 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 uh, what I talked about a little bit yesterday is it seems like a lot of the healthcare in this country is based on this idea of treating uh, the problem or managing it, managing diabetes, and not exactly like curing it or something like that. So, am I right? Does that seem to be the trend? In right, well, in, in, you know, a, a bit of a history that. You know, you you march back before we had the the life saving tool of insulin. Uh, I'm quick to point out how evil insulin can be to our bodies when it's in excess. But let's start back with when it saved people's lives because with the type one diabetes, without insulin, they would starve to death. Their bodies couldn't uh, transport that energy to a place where they could use it without insulin, and that that did save the lives of people with type 1 diabetes who couldn't produce it. But they didn't die suddenly when you were given the, the, the curse of being a type 1 diabetic before we had insulin around. We knew that our bodies would produce um, or get fuel from the carbohydrates or sugar that we took in. And the way we use that sugar is if we have insulin. If you can't produce insulin, we have another backup plan inside our bodies where we can use energy that comes from fat. And if you want to see people who are able to live as long as possible, the treatment plan before we had insulin was put them on a diet of high fat. The wonderful introduction of insulin led to a a great improvement in, in these people's lives. And then when our bodies of uh, you know, the America of 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and now in you know, 2016, the obesity epidemic um, is an outrageous, it, 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 has, it has consumed America. As we've consumed the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, which is they're too fat for how much insulin is in their body. And as that, um, as that heaviness or that, that excess weight has changed the way their body works, they come in and the rescue to get them to feel better is think, a, a cheap medicine like metformin. But if they haven't seen the doctor and they've, they've really progressed in their diabetes, well, we can get their brain working better and their body working better quickly with that insulin. And it's become uh, one of the standard treatments as opposed to um, 
what should be a better long-term plan for those patients, which is, uh-oh, teach them how to eat better, and we can do this with the without the shackle of them being a diabetic forever. You can actually cure type 2 diabetes with shifting where their calories come from and getting them off of dependency of insulin. Um, but the way medicine has gone in the last uh, 15 years is I'm going to get 15 to 20 minutes with each of my internal medicine patients and the fastest way to get them not dying was to you know, throw them on insulin, to take the time and educate how do we teach them to cure this problem. Um, yeah, that, that's reimbursed. <laughs> and it also becomes um, logistically, it takes time to educate that understanding. And so, you know, if we talk about the political ramifications, before before we get into the uh ketogenic diet stuff, which I want to talk to you about. But before we get okay. into that, uh, I, just, I just want to point out that the, one of the political ramifications is that when you have something like diabetes that requires mm-hmm. ongoing, ongoing treatment, so let's say the insulin pens, right? Obamacare right. has created this horrific financial, uh, they call it a donut hole situation, where if, you, if, you, if you're poor, there's a subsidy. If you're rich, right. you're rich, right? But if you're in the middle, what you need for health care on diabetes is, for instance, if you're using insulin, you need to buy insulin every month, okay? Now, mm-hmm. th- that insulin cost, a, a, if you're not insured, it's like two, $300, something like that. It's, it's mm-hmm. expensive, yep. okay? Very now, expensive, if you're, right. If you, if you are insured, then you can get lower copay. You can get a $10 copay or whatever, but now you have to buy the insurance. And so for people who, uh, like, like me who are, who are diabetic, it becomes a choice. Do I spend the money on the insurance and then not have the money to buy the medicine, basically, <laughs> or do I just right. spend the money on, on the medicine that I need? And I mean, is, am I the only person having facing this kind of uh, choice, or are you seeing this? Uh, you can't talk about individual patients, but broadly, no, are you seeing this as a problem? Are easy to yeah, are easy to see. To go back to when there was a donut hole in Medicare, um, so you've got your elderly patients, many of them obese, and now you know their 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 bodies need the help of insulin to sustain, and the cost when they would hit this cap that government would pay for that now you need to survive this donut hole, they called it. Um, the whole year would be spent stockpiling up samples for my patients, my diabetic patients, who would get to September and they would have run out of all of the, the funds that Medicare would cover. And now I would have to bridge them from September to January 1st with samples of insulin because they couldn't afford it. They simply couldn't afford it. So that problem that got you know, subsidized with extra insurances, and, and now you fast forward 10 years later to Obamacare, and it's not like those people just suddenly magically came up with the funds to buy these ex- expensive uh, supplies and, and testing, and then, of course, the insulin to take care of their diabetes. Uh, they still get stuck in the same trap that you just described, which is, okay, I've got this terrible problem. 
it's going to cause my heart to fail, my my legs and feet to have circulation problems, my brain isn't going to work right, my vision will go. All of these uh, consequences are usually very well known to my patients with diabetes, but that's going to happen over 10 years. I need to survive this month. And right now, I can't afford the insulin, so I'm going to run around with a sugar of 300 and just take the consequences. And so by the time, if for whatever reason they either get insurance or they, you know, <laughs> try to find a way to get insulin on the black market, which I know happens. I have patients who come in and say, I've been taking insulin, but my, my source died up. And I'm like, what? They're like, no, 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 the place I was getting it off of, you know, whatever, you know, resource they could find uh, stopped, and now they had to, you know, get back to the into a physician to get it. And it just shows the desperation that patients have gone to, because the bridge to to supply the tools to manage this expensive disease co- costs so much that and the price that that patient was going to pay this month, they aren't going to feel that much different in the first few months of taking care of diabetes. They're going to have a much better life long term when they're managed and taken care of. But to the patient who's trying to figure out, do I pay for heat and food or insulin and my test strips? Yeah, they'll they'll choose heat and food every time. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's part of the reason I want to have you on because I think that, you know, in all the discussion about Obamacare, sometimes the practical consequences of what's actually happened due to Obamacare have gotten lost in the debate. Everybody, you know, as much as politicians, including Republican politicians, like to talk about repeal and replace, they don't really talk about what's actually happening to people out there. And, of course, this was hidden from us. We're talking to Dr. Annette Bosworth. We'll have more with her after this break. It's 30 minutes past the hour. Shining the light of truth on liberal America. Hey, that's a bright light. Radio Stranahan. This is Lee Stranahan. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. We're talking to Dr. Annette Bosworth. So, and by the way, I, have, I think I have to do, I'm going to do a disclaimer just out of fear. So, this is, I've read something about like when you have a doctor on, you have to do all this stuff. We have to say that like, Dr. Annette Bosworth is not your doctor, and any medical information <laughs> is given for informational purposes only, and consult your own physician, and blah, blah, blah. So everything we're saying, take uh, pretend I'm filling in every scare disclaimer you've ever heard, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. So, so I, I talked about, I've been doing the ketogenic diet now for about uh, three weeks. And by the way, the ketogenic diet is not, this is not a thing you're, we're selling anybody. Does that make sense? Right. I want people to be clear. No. There's not a there's not a box with the ketogenic diet in it. Um, no. So so I've been doing it for about three weeks. It's I've seen my blood sugar drop and I'm using less insulin. And right. Uh, and I'll be honest, I don't understand it myself, which I should. As I've t- I, I'm very blunt about this. I just do what you and my wife tell me to do. That's what I do. <laughs> and if they say eat this, I, that's what I do. I just like okay, eat this because I'm trying to get this under control. So, can you explain to people who don't know anything about it 
what a ketogenic diet is. I didn't even, I don't, I, I had to get Shane to explain, my son Shane, to explain the pr- proper pronunciation of the term yesterday. So explain what this is and, and, and why it works. Can you explain that to people? Right, yeah, that, that's uh, the, the beauty of being a physician. Um, in uh, the context, it is our job to understand these processes in the body and educate patients. The disclaimer conversation you were having at the beginning is it's real, uh, especially with a diabetic on insulin. This isn't something I would encourage anybody to do that wasn't under the um, supervision of a doctor who's helping you with a ketogenic diet and understands the process. Um, And and that's specific for somebody on insulin because it it is so powerful in how it shifts the body's ability to manage this um, this sugar metabolism or energy metabolism that you can hurt yourself if you're not watching. So, of course, um, if if you're a type one diabetic or a type two diabetic, it's it's a I recommend this for my patients. But I don't whimsically do that. If they're one of my patients who I hear from every couple of years and they don't have a support system to help them transition onto this diet, um, it can hurt them. But when you've got somebody like your wife who says, I really think we should help him do this, the cost of these uh, medicines and test strips are, you know, really kind of draining the, the resources, is there any way we can cut down these costs? And, um, of course, uh, the answer is with what we're talking about today, a ketogenic diet. So let's go back to um, that conversation I was having at the beginning. Had you come to me in 19... 19- 10 or 1920 and you had uh, type 1 diabetes, meaning your body didn't produce insulin, the standard textbook treatment was, okay, the human body produces energy from two sources, carbohydrates or fat. And if your body can't produce insulin, you cannot put carbohydrates in it. The carbohydrates can't be stored and you can't use that energy. They have to be, all of their energy needs to come from fat. And that's the simplest uh, explanation of this, but the the very inspiring and um, hopeful uh, process that we've seen with ketogenic diets comes about um, because of what ketones um, or the process of being in a ketogenic diet. A ketone is is a byproduct of what happens when you use fat for energy. And this state of being in ketosis is the opposite of an inflamed body, the opposite of uh, the swelling or inflammation that causes heart disease, that causes Alzheimer's, that causes joint disease. And when we eat carbohydrates and have a constant sense of, uh, of the sugar and the, and the associated swelling, our bodies waste energy as they deal with that extra inflammation. When you have a carbohydrate floating around in your blood, it has a huge uh, number of water molecules that it pulls with it. And when people go on an Atkins diet or, or a ketogenic diet, they'll say, oh, you just lose all that water weight and that's all that diet is. And that is not true. You do lose a bunch of water weight that shouldn't be in your body in the first place. And the way that water stays in your system it's because you keep feeding it all these carbohydrates that float around in your blood, and they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be that high. 
one of the biggest selling points that I, when I'm trying to talk to patients about this is a change, this is going to be difficult, especially when you live in America where there's carbohydrate options at every corner of your life, uh, but the transition of how much improved um, energy your body will have, sustainable energy that your body has, uh, and I mean that, that it's not the up and down quick energy that you get from carbohydrates, but they can stay focused and um, a stable level of, of physical and mental energy for 12 hours uh, between meals. And and that's that's part of the benefit of being on a fat-burning diet is that sustainable energy, as well as the removal of the, the extra water or the inflammation that a diabetic, it's the death of them. What kills a diabetic isn't that their sugars are high and they keel over from a, from a coma. What kills a diabetic is the years that go by where the insulin and sugar are floating around the body causing flames. We call it inflammation, uh, it, you know, extra swelling in the joints, in, their, in the back of their eyes, in their heart mu- muscles and in the heart arteries in their brain arteries and that chronic inflammation not for one day but over years is what makes their brains not work their eyes not work their circulation poor and the the shift of saying we can fix this you just have to be willing to like not listen to what we've been told about carbohydrates and the food pyramid for the last 30 years and instead take it back to the science of how we've how we we do understand a ketogenic diet was much more powerful, much more much more uh, likely to stay a sustained treatment or even reversal of diabetes, as opposed to what we've done to patients over the last thirty years. I mean, we take for example, you you came into a doctor who wanted to help you um, several years ago when you first got diagnosed, and they put out the disaster of the high sugar with insulin. But had they taken that same moment and said, all right, you've been assigned to not eating any more carbohydrates. You've got way too many of them in your system. And he, he, would have, he or she should have plotted out, here's how you don't end up in this mess 20 years later, 15 years later, however long that diabetes has been there. Now, and so just explain to people, too, like, like practically when you talk about diet, you're talking about fat and carbohydrates, but what is a ketogenic diet look like? If you're looking at a typical breakfast, lunch, and dinner, how is it different than what people are thinking about now for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Well, the, the, the big rule that patients screw it up all the time is this is an 80% fat. So how do you get 80% fat in your diet? And I'll just describe a typical day for me um, or any of my patients. I use this example that breakfast it has no carbohydrates. You get a total of 20 carbohydrates in a whole day. And so breakfast would be eggs mixed with some you know, spinach and maybe some bacon. Uh, our, eggs is the easiest one for our family because it's easy to prepare and you can you know, put some cheese in it. The kids like it. And they don't even notice that this didn't have any carbohydrates in it. Um, the... The beautiful part is once on a ketogenic diet, the next meal isn't usually lunch. I mean, we wait. The, the other really important part that I tell my patients is on a ketogenic diet, 
quit telling yourself that you need to eat three times a day. I have a couple of my diabetics that the way they got off insulin where they have they have one meal a day. And you think, oh, that sounds so restrictive. How could they ever do it? But that is the beautiful part about energy produced from fat is that it's not high and low. They stay sustained. So you say, what's for breakfast, lunch, and dinner on a ketogenic diet? The the number one answer is sometimes it's only two meals a day because they're not hungry. And that doesn't happen at first, of course. So breakfast is usually eggs or some sort of meat. If they have coffee, which I have uh, no limitations for my patients that want to have coffee in the morning, they don't put milk in it. They put cream. Again, uh, that... um, Cream has high fat and no carbohydrates. Uh, the more you process the milk, the, you remove the fat, and that leaves behind the carbohydrates. With um, other things that go in commonly for breakfast, I'll have people use um, a coconut milk, which can be lower in carbohydrates, um, and it's got some of those medium-chain triglycerides, which we can talk about some other time. That's really important on this diet. Um, well, the next meal then is usually, um, I like to think of high fatty meats. Uh, some of the errors that I'll have my, my uh, patients make are they get on a, they go off of carbs, but then they go really high in protein. So they'll have the chicken breast, but they don't have the skin, they don't have any fat with it, and that's going to lead to a problem. You, you've got to have 80% fat to, to make ketones. And if you skip the fat because you've been told forever how terrible that is for you, um, you're not going to be in a ketogenic diet. So the the high-fat meats include, like salmon is a high-fat meat. Um, so is beef, but a marbled beef, um, um, a pork. But don't skip the fat. Uh, when I When people talk about having a salad or a vegetable with their meat, which is part of this diet, the, the vegetable needs to be coated in an oil or a fat, whether that's butter or coconut oil or the, the delivery of these calories to get them absorbed into the body. You have to have 80% of the diet be from fat, and that's the biggest mistake I see patients make. And, so that, then, and that's because, well, and, that's, and, and just to be clear, that's because you're saying that this is really sort of a chemical shift in the body to be using the fat to burn energy, correct? Correct. Is, am, I, am I right? Okay, so I got, yep. got that right. And, and the best part about it is that you, you've gone through what I think is the hardest part. First of all, you're on, a, you're on insulin, so you had to you know, be very mindful when we did the switch. But second of all, that, that body who's used to burning carbohydrates, used to using the engine for carbohydrates, uh, that's been turned on in your body for several years, and to have a ketone even used once in my diabetic is impossible if they're on uh, uh, long-acting insulin like you are. So they've not burned a ketone in years, and their bodies are inflamed, their blood vessels are, are hardened, they have a hardening of the arteries. And to switch their systems to a ketogenic diet where this, this is a sustainable process, not only do they get better at using that fat for their fuel, but when the calories from the fat run out, like you eat 
eggs and you run out, once the body is used to using fat for calories, it taps into your stored fat and keeps burning fat. So you don't feel this loss of like this, you know, oh, I feel like I have a low blood sugar. You don't feel that because it goes from using the absorbed fat uh, from the meal you've eaten and, and that machine for burning ketones continues and taps into your stored fat, which is beautiful. The, the antidote for diabetics, especially type 2, is get their weight off. And it's impossible to do that with that when you're giving them insulin every few hours, filling their body with insulin. Does that make sense? That's, yeah, it does. It, no, it, it absolutely makes sense. Listen, uh, Dr. Bosworth, I know you have to go. So I'm going to uh, we'll wrap this up now, but I would love to have you on another time, particularly to talk about uh, some of the other issues at, uh, that, that you deal with, including addiction and stuff like that. We Obviously, we're in yeah. a... Yeah, I would love to it just I do, came. I do want to give you one, one brief thing that in the, the last few months, one of the solutions for Obamacare has been that they've redefined what it means to be a diabetic which leaves people in the pre-diabetic and untreated phase because it costs too much to give them treatment. And they just came out with those newly uh, outlined diabetic uh, profiles because they saw, holy Hannah, we don't have enough money to treat them. So now let's redefine what we call a diabetic and let them make a bigger mess for us to handle in 10 years. So we can get into the politics of that at, at our next conversation too. Yeah, we should. That, that, that's really interesting, them redefining it. It's very, very interesting. And uh, another time, too, I would love to talk about uh, what you think should be in the replace part of repeal in place, how you think we should be going forward on this. But I'll let you go right now. Dr. Annette Bosworth, everybody, uh, thanks very much for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Nice to talk to you. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye-bye. Uh, Lee Stranahan, Braveheart investigative reporter who is – well, just knows everything. Radio Stranahan. It's all good. You're listening to Lee Stranahan, Radio Stranahan, making you smarter. See, look, I've made you smarter about diabetes already today, haven't I? I've made you smarter about these nutcases who are going to be having a house outside the White House. There you go. That's 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 a couple. That's a that's as much smart as most people can handle. That is as much smart as most people give you on a typical radio talk show all month. So that's a significant amount of smart right there. And we're not even over. We're not even halfway through the show. Coming up next hour will be Cassandra Fairbanks, and we'll be talking about Russia mania. I don't know what else to call it. Russia phobia. Should we do Russia phobia? I think we should. The phobias are all a rage. Islamophobia. If you point out that someone, Alua Akbar, and then starts killing people, that's apparently Islamophobic. You're not supposed to say that. So, Russia phobia? Can we? I think that's the thing. I think we can get some traction with that. Now, I warned you I'm going to ask you to call in. Oh, look, here I go again. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. I wasn't fooling. I wasn't joking. 619-924-0786. Hey, by the way, you can find excerpts from the show. You want excerpts? 
little snippets, you can find those on SoundCloud. Also, you can find starting like today, we're going to have episodes of my Making the News podcast, my podcast about indie journalism. Those are going to be up on SoundCloud as well. You can check it out on iTunes right now. The Making the News podcast is you just look for go, go to here's what you do. You go to iTunes now. You look for Making the News. You type that in. And there you go. You'll have the podcast staring you in the face as much as a thing you listen to can stare you in the face. It's a metaphor. Just just go with it. But Making the News is about to be on SoundCloud. I'm about to put all 12 episodes. And I'm very happy to announce that we have a guest coming up this Friday a lot of the people I've interviewed on Making the News are conservative because I've interviewed people who are friends of mine, and I write for Breitbart.com. And so we've had people on the show like Milo Yiannopoulos on Making the News. We've had the great Seb Gorka, Brandon Darby, a few people I've had on the show as well, John Cardillo, the lovely and talented Cassandra Fairbanks, who uh, will be on this show this next hour. So I've had some great guests on Making the News, and Making the News is specifically me as a journalist talking to other journalists. I'll be honest. I'll tell you, it's a ripoff of an idea, basically. Mark Marin, the comedian, has a show called WTF, except he says the whole thing. I'm not going to. Not because it's not a word I don't use, but it's not a word I use on the show. If I hit my thumb with a hammer... Or if I'm just mad, it's a word I'll use. But it's not just the hammer. Sometimes I get upset. Sometimes I just use it in a Samuel Jackson, use it every other word sense. But I digress. The point here is that making the news came from Mark Maron's WTF show, where Mark Maron's a stand-up comic, and he talks to other comedians about comedy. Most of the time, that's what he does. I wrote about the show and I interviewed Mark Marin very early when he first, I think I was the first reporter really to cover WTF. I wrote about it back at Huffington Post. And I'm a fan of the show because it's interesting to hear professionals talk about what they do. And so I adapted that idea for journalism. And I said, I think it would be interesting for people to hear journalists talk to other journalists about journalism. And that's the idea behind making the news. It's, it's, it's me, a journalist, interviewing other, other journalists. But my goal was never to have just conservative guests. I have a lot of them because they're friends of mine and because I do think that, especially for the past eight years or so, especially, the more interesting independent journalism tends to be on the right. But that being said, this Friday, it's scheduled. It hasn't happened yet, so maybe I'm jinxing myself, but I'm scheduled to interview Glenn Greenwald, the publisher of The Intercept, guy who I don't agree with on politics on a number of issues, but Glenn Greenwald was the guy behind the Edward Snowden story, He's a and, – and there's no question that Glenn Greenwald has had a huge impact 
And here's the other thing I like about Glenn Greenwald uh, quite a bit. The dude is independent. You can't question his independence. Again, and that's part of what I wanted to do with that show, with making the news, is have people who I may not agree with them, but they're doing interesting independent work. And hopefully he's the first. I've had a couple of people on there who aren't traditionally conservative. Tim Pool, Tim Cass is certainly not a, a conservative. Uh, but uh, Cassandra's not either really. She was a Bernie Sanders supporter who became a Trump supporter. So Cassandra, we'll talk to Cassandra about that next hour when she's on. But I'm very happy to have Glenn Greenwald, an honor he'll be on, because he is a major player and, like I say, a fiercely independent voice. And he's got other reporters working for him, like Lee Thong. And look, the fact that he goes, I'm fine with somebody. If you want to go after Trump, if you want to go after the Republicans, that's fine. The other guy who's pretty good about this, actually, is Senk Unger from the Young Turks. A lot of people hate Senk particularly if you're conservative, but I'll tell you this, the guy's independent, and he's spoken out. This is why I interviewed him at the RNC. I actually introduced him to Steve Bannon there. Steve was interested in meeting Senk and uh, Jenk. Jenk? I think it's Jenk. But uh, he was interested in, in meeting him, and so I introduced the two of them. But he's another guy who's independent. And look, I, I prize independence more than your ideology. I prize somebody having a, a good independent mind and independent spirit because long-term, I think that's better. Now, I warned you that I'm going to keep playing this for you, and I'm not even joking. <laughs> I'm just going to point out that I'm, I mean it. So I'm going, to, I'm going to play it again. Ready? Here we go. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. To keep my promise, I only need to play it two more times. 619-924-0786. If you have any questions, comments about the news of the day, stuff that's going on, feel free to call in and talk about them. If you want to call in during our guest spot, feel free to call in and talk about that. But I'm going to keep bugging you. Because as I pointed out, I'm doing this Radio Extranahan, these two-hour shows every day. It's an experiment for a project that I'm not prepared to reveal yet. I'm going to talk about something else, though, I am prepared to reveal, which is something free I'm doing for you, which is the Stranahan Report. I did a periscope about it early this morning, and the Stranahan Report is going to be talking about stuff I've been working on, excerpts from the show. It's a good way to keep up with what I've been doing, but it's also a way for you to keep up with what the news events are. It's going to be coming out first thing in the morning. It's completely free. You can go to stranahan.com right now, sign up for it. Don't miss it. If you've already signed up for something with me, you'll be getting a notification about it. Don't you worry. But this gets into the topic of fake news again. And look, this is a topic I talk frequently about because it's something I am passionate about. I think that bad journalism has got us into a number of the problems that we face. And I think good journalism can get us out of it. I had a fascinating talk last night with somebody 
who I, I'm not going to mention who it is, but I had a, a two-hour conversation with an absolutely brilliant person last night. And when I say brilliant, I mean, if you saw this person's resume, they're, you know, a genius. And we got into talking about the problem that we're facing. This is a smart, independent person. And we, we, we got into politics a little bit and media. And we got into all the problems that media is causing. And one of the things we talked about, and I'm going to talk about this till the end of the hour. Uh, the next hour, we have Cassandra Fairbanks coming up. But one of the big problems right now is the platforms. And what this person said to me was, the part of the problem is the way news is paid for right now. It's either sponsored by somebody at a high level who has an agenda. Therefore, they want something, they want a certain message put out. And they're willing to pay millions of dollars to do that. Because it seems like news is a lost leader. Or it's paid for by advertising, in which case you're still beholden to an advertiser. In other words, if McDonald's or Starbucks or the Ford Motor Company is paying for ads for your news, you don't want to go after McDonald's or Starbucks or the Ford Motor Company, right? You don't want to bite the hand that feeds you. And this is a problem in journalism. And the problem is it's a problem for everybody. Now, I, we, we, in this discussion, we talked about a lot of topics, but in this discussion, I made the point that I think people have not actually figured out a new business model for journalism yet. And I don't think journalism first off, needs to cost nearly as much as it does. I think a lot of the, where people are spending their money on journalism now is essentially everybody rewriting the same story. It's called aggregating, but everybody essentially rewriting the same story. Because here's the thing. If Donald Trump makes a speech and there's 50 reporters in the audience. Each one of them is going to write up the speech. And really, almost all of them are going to have the same. Donald Trump spoke and he said this stuff. Or this is the most interesting thing he said. And I, I got to say, I don't know how useful that is. In fact, I'm a big believer in this. And I actually got chastised for this the other day. But I'm a big believer in laying out the facts and letting you make up your own mind. I'm a big believer in quoting at length. And I was, again, I was chastised for this for a story I wrote. They were like, well, you're using a lot of quotes. But that's what I like to do because that's what I like to read. I don't want to read somebody else's interpretation of a conversation, right? If Donald Trump said something, let me hear what he said. And maybe give me a little bit of context before and after so I can make sure you're not BSing me. Does that make sense? But I'll be honest. I don't need to hear somebody's interpretation. Just don't need it. Not interested. And so this is one of the problems we face. And I think that there's another business model possible 
for journalism. And I'll talk about it after this short break. Let me take a short break because we're almost up at the top of the hour here. And then I'll talk about potentially, potentially, not potentially. I don't even know what potentially is. Potentially, another business model that might make sense for journalism. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Bringing the truth to all 50 states. Yeah, even Massachusetts. Radio Stranahan. Radio Stranahan, this is Lee Stranahan. You know, one of the differences between this and a regular terrestrial radio show is right now at the top of the hour, I would have five minutes to enjoy a beverage while the news, while someone did the news, right? The news headlines. Uh, that'd be nice. Hang on one second. I don't, see, I don't have that luxury, so I have, to take a, I have to take a drink of water. I only have 15 seconds. I got the water right in front of me. By the way, I didn't talk about this last hour in the net, but I, I've mentioned it to you before. I've dropped coffee completely. I don't do coffee anymore. Since I've been doing the ketogenic diet, which has, it really has worked. And you can look more. There's a lot of books about it. Annette had a go. That was the thing. Annette, Annette texted me right before we went on and said she had to get to something for her son. So I'm trying to be a good host to make sure she gets out of there on time because that's the way I roll as a host. I'm nothing if not polite. Hang on. Let me drink some water. Hang on. You'll enjoy hearing this. One moment. Ooh. Ah, yummy. See, again, if this were terrestrial radio, or even satellite radio, such as Sirius Satellite Radio, where I'm a frequent guest, by the way, not as frequent as I should be, everybody would be smarter if I were on satellite radio more. There's no question about that. But I'm a frequent guest. They, they have these breaks, too. They have top-of-the-hour breaks and everything like that. Plus, they have frequent commercials. I have occasional commercials. I'll run one in a second, more specifically 13 minutes. But I don't get the big breaks. But anyway, I digress. The point here that I was making is that the platforms are really important. And one of the things I said, as I was mentioning before the break, I had a great conversation last night with a really smart person. And uh, I talked about what I do as a journalist at, at Breitbart and how we're in a period of time. I also talked to my friend, the CEO of Breitbart last night, Larry Soloff, and we were commiserating about the attacks that Breitbart News has faced, which, by the way, are a bunch of hooey. I think I can say that. A bunch of hooey. It's become so commonplace for them to call everybody racist, where they, where, where they call Breitbart News racist, which is a diverse staff of people of different colors, ethnic backgrounds, religions, sexual preferences. We've, we've got the diversity up the wazoo, and that's not a Milo joke, so get, get your mind out of the gutter. We've got plenty of diversity. And including diversity of ideas, which is the most important one. I really don't even care about the rest of this stuff. I really don't. 
I'm interested in the diversity of ideas. The reason I love Sonny Johnson, and I got to get Sonny on here. The reason she'd be, she's a great guest. I just love Sonny. The reason I love Sonny though, isn't because she's black, but it doesn't hurt. It's because she's independent. She's got a, and she's very smart. She's got a quick, independent mind. Now her blackness is part of who makes her who she is. So you can't, you, you can't take that out of who she is any more than Andrew Breitbart's Jewishness is part of who he is or my hillbilliness is part of who I is, right? I, someone asked, in the conversation last night, this very smart person I was talking to, Said I, they said I don't want to be. What's your ethnic background? And I said I don't know. I said American, mutt. I don't know. Scots Irish, hillbilly, which is I think approximately right. My mother was from Virginia. Her father was English. There's some Scotch. There could be a little Swede in there somewhere. I don't know. But Stranahan that's Irish, I think. So. But whatever, Sonny, Sonny's being black is part of who Sonny is. Where Sonny was raised is part of who Sonny is. But I don't, I don't like Sonny because she's black, because there's black people I don't like. Is that racist? Am I allowed to not like some black people and to like other ones? By the way, there's some white people I don't like as well. Is this abnormal? Am I the only one who has these strange things where I like people based on who they are? by, let's say, the content of their, I don't know, character, and not the color of their skin. Is that okay? This is what the left is fighting against, this idea, the Martin Luther King ideal of colorblindness, while having no problem with people from a different background. I have no problem with that. But there are good and bad people in every race and every religion, But on the other hand, when there are clear statistical problems in some of these areas, I'm also not shy about saying that. And I don't think I should be shy about saying it. And I don't think you should be shy about saying it either. We talked to John Cardillo earlier in the week about the problem with black crime statistics. You're not allowed to talk about them. Now, to me, that just makes me want to talk about them more, especially since I actually do care about the fate of black Americans. And I do for patriotic, re- patriotic reasons. Let me talk about that. I, I haven't talked about this in the show. You cannot have America. You cannot tell the history of America without talking about black Americans. What the left likes to focus on strictly is slavery. But here's the example I use, and I've used it before. If you want to look at America's cultural impact on the world, what we're known for around the world, right? One of the biggest cultural impacts, for instance, is music. American music has affected world music. And The big three types of American music, music that started here, would be jazz, rock and roll, and hip-hop. You could throw the blues in there as well as a precursor to rock and roll. 
And let's let's I'll I'll throw in four. Let's throw in the blues. The blues is in an interesting position. It's sort of sideways from jazz, but slightly different. But let's throw that in. Jazz, blues, rock and roll, hip hop. And I could throw in other types of American music in their funk as well, somewhere between rock and roll and hip hop. But those four started in America, grown in America, musical forms. You couldn't have without black Americans, period. Black Americans are at every point. But by the way, so are white Americans. White Americans are at every point. Less so with the blues and less so with hip-hop, but they're in there. But So if you look at the impact that America has had on the world, or sports, take sports as another example, you can't talk about the American impact on sports around the world without talking about someone like Muhammad Ali. Who are the most famous people in the world? For many years, it was Muhammad Ali, Michael Jackson. So, and even when you look at cuisine, even when you look at food, when you look at what's the food, what are the food types that America's introduced to the world? We talk about French cooking or Mexican cooking, right? American food is barbecue. It's Cajun food. Those are the big two. Those are cuisines that you can go around the world, and they're American cuisines. You could also bring up stuff like hamburgers, for instance. That's American cuisine as well. Soul food you might be able to throw in there. But all of these cultural things that America is known for around the world, you can't have without talking about black Americans. Period. It's an integral part of it. And so my point is the impact we've had on the world partially had to do with the fact that this was not a white country. This was a country of white people and black people. From the outset, this was a country of white people and black people and some other people, but predominantly that's what made the difference. Now, we had a very different situation with slavery, which I don't know. It's one of those things where, once again, whenever people talk about slavery, you're supposed to say you're opposed to it, and I'm just going to say, duh. Right. So I'm not going to go out on a limb and go, oh, well, I'm I'm opposed to slavery. Slavery is horrible. Of course. Right. Yes. But things have gotten so ridiculous in terms of political correctness that people somehow feel the urge to say that. I mentioned this the other day. I forget who I was talking about, but like with Nazis or whatever, you're supposed to say, no, that's not what I was talking about. But like you're supposed to say, of course, I'm opposed to Assad. That's what I was talking about. I was talking about Syria. And you're supposed to say, well, I'm opposed to Assad. Well, duh, right? I'm opposed to Middle Eastern strongmen dictators. But I think jihadists are worse. That's what I think. And so, you know, but one of the problems in America, obviously, going back to the conception, going back to the time of the founding fathers, was the contradiction of slavery. And it was a contradiction, because the fact is, the left has done nothing historically for racial harmony. The left is divisive, and it's divisive by nature. I'm going to elucidate on that point. 
the left is divisive by nature. Now, how so? Because the frame that the left sees the world through, the lens that tints everything it sees, is the left sees the world as fundamentally oppressor and oppressed. They see the world as two groups of people, those who are being oppressed and those who are the oppressor. And I'm not saying, for the purposes of discussion, forget whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the way the left sees it. You'll constantly hear this. So when when the left uses terms that most Americans mean one thing by, freedom, justice, they don't mean what most people in the country mean by freedom and justice. In that sense, most people have a rather libertarian worldview of freedom and justice. They mean freedom from government oppression. This is a very American thing, right? But that's traditionally what it's meant, freedom from government oppression. Freedom from an unjust government. That's what they mean. Socialists don't mean that when they talk about freedom and justice. They see the world as oppressor-oppressed. And when they see the world as oppressor-oppressed, who's the oppressor? The answer is America, white males, Christians. That's the oppressed. That's the oppressor, forgive me. The oppressed is everybody else. Black people, women, gay people, all of the Hispanic people, minorities. This is the coalitions. This is the identity group coalitions that are formed. And so the left cannot help but see the world in this oppressor-oppressed mindset. And that has a very definite effect. That viewpoint has a definite effect on policy But it also means that they need to keep that status quo. They need to keep people feeling like they're oppressed. That's why we see propaganda about groups like the Black Panthers, who were horrible. And I'm going to pick this up after the break and talk more about the Black Panthers and racial justice. I am, once again, going to make you smarter because... I think I may have pointed out once or twice, that's my job, that's my goal, that's what I'm obsessed by, is making you smarter every day. So we'll talk about that afterwards. You'll listen to Radio Stranding, and it's quarter past the hour, 15 minutes past the hour. No false modesty, please, Lee. Forget the Pulitzers. You know, you should be getting a a, a global prize for what you've been doing because it's really something that nobody else has done and and you're really leading the way. Radio Stranahan. Do you watch the news and find yourself thinking, I can do better than this? If you know how bad the mainstream media is and you want to make media that's better than they are, I started Citizen Journalism School just for you. CitizenJournalismSchool.com will give you the information and allow you to sign up for the free mailing list and get our free course, Building Your Own Media Empire. 
but I want to tell you about a program that is for people who are serious about a career in journalism. If you really want to make a difference, we have a program called the Citizen Journalism School Mentorship Program, where you work directly with me, one-on-one and in small group settings. And the best part is it's a fraction of the cost of journalism school. Go to citizenjournalismschool.com right now to get more information. Citizenjournalismschool.com. You listen to Radio Stranahan, Lee Stranahan here. So I was talking before about how the left cannot help but stir up racial division. They can't. They can't. And it's because they see the world as oppressor oppressed. And when you see the world as oppressor oppressed, what happens is you always need an oppressor. And so what happens is once you get rid of one oppressor, you have to start looking around for a new one. It's a snake chasing its own tail. You always need an oppressor. We see, we see this, for instance, in the aftermath of the Vietnamese War places like Cambodia. They got rid of the one oppressor, and then immediately they started looking around. We need a new oppressor. Oh, it's people with glasses. Let's kill them. That's who we need to kill. And by the way, I talked about this earlier in the show when I talked about the millennial protest against Trump, the permanent District 13 site that they're planning to set up outside the White House. This group called Millennials for Revolution, forgive me, not resolution. That would be the opposite. Millennials for Revolution, this group, they're planning to set up a permanent protest site against Trump. And I said at the beginning of the show, I would love to see cameras. I would pay money if they made it like the Big Brother house because I said they're going to bicker. And they're going to bicker and it's going to get ugly. And there's a reason. It's because if you are paranoid and you're always looking for an oppressor, you're going to find it. And if you get rid of one oppressor, you're going to find a new one. That's it. This is the problem with the frame, with the viewpoint that the left has. You cannot get rid of the oppressor. Now, this has also happened with the Black Panther Party. So, again, making you smarter, let's give a little bit of history. So the Black Panther Party formed in 1966 by Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. By the way, none of this is written. This is all just out of the inside of my brain. So I'll tell you if I don't know the dates, because I'm not looking at my notes, but but this is all just from memory, because it's a subject I know very well. Black Panther Party formed in 1966 in Oakland, California, by Huey P. Newton, by Bobby Seale. And broadly, the Black Panther Party was really part of the wider black liberation movement. That came a few years earlier, sort of as an offshoot of the civil rights movement. The main proponent of that was Stokely Carmichael. Stokely Carmichael is the one who popularized the phrase black power. So the Black Liberation Movement was specifically a socialist movement, and it came out of both a Maoist perspective on Marxism 
it paid lip service to Marxist-Leninism in some cases, but also writers like Franz Fanon. Franz Fanon, very, very well-known. If you're not familiar with Franz Fanon, that's because you're not on the left. The left is very familiar with Franz Fanon. His major work was called The Wretched of the Earth. And Eldridge Cleaver, who became a leader in the Black Panther Party, Eldridge Cleaver said, every brother on a rooftop can quote Fanon. And Fanon talked about the cleansing power of violence, and he talked about so when you when you hear about violent protests, this is built in to the Black Power movement. Fanon specifically talked about the cleansing power of violence. Now, the myth of the Black Panther Party is that the Black Panthers were just minding their own business. They just wanted freedom, you know, peace and love. The Black Panthers were a revolutionary group. They wanted the violent overthrow. We talked to David Horowitz about this a little bit earlier in the week. Now, David Horowitz mentioned that in the 60s, he was with Ramparts Magazine. Eldridge Cleaver, who I just mentioned, the Black Panther leader, wrote for Ramparts. David Horowitz worked with the Black Panthers in the 70s with a school that they had. And that was, in fact, part of what got David Horowitz to leave the left was his dealings with the Black Panthers and a woman who was a friend of David's named Betty Van Patter, who the Panthers appear to have kidnapped, raped, killed, and threw in the San Francisco Bay. And the reason they did this to Betty Van Patter, who is a leftist, by the way, is that David Horowitz recommended her. She used to be a bookkeeper. She was a white woman, a white leftist, used to be a bookkeeper at Ramparts. The Black Panthers needed a bookkeeper because one of their bookkeepers had run away in the middle of the night, which is the way a lot of people left the Black Panther Party. This is history they don't tell you on PBS. And so David Horowitz recommended this woman, Betty Van Patter, go and work with the Panthers. The Black Panthers had a bar that they controlled called the Lamp Post. It was in downtown Oakland. I've been to the site. It's no longer there. But the Lamp Post was a bar that the Panthers had. It was owned by the cousin of one of the Panthers. I believe it was Huey P. Newton's cousin. And they would hang out at the bar. The bar had a restaurant as well. They would eat there. And they would deal drugs, run extortion, run prostitutes out of the bar. But it was Panther territory. So Betty Van Patter was hired at the suggestion of David Horowitz to become the bookkeeper for the Black Panthers and the school that David was running. And part of that is she was doing the books for the lamppost bar. She found out that the lamppost was laundering money. There were things in the books that she couldn't account for. And so she went to an attorney who worked with the Panthers and said, look, I can't do this. I'm a bookkeeper. I'll be held responsible for this. I cannot do this bookkeeping for the Black Panthers in good conscience 
because they're doing things that are illegal and they're trying to launder the money. That lawyer, who, by the way, is still a practicing attorney in California and a Jerry Brown appointee, his name is Fred Heastant. Fred Heastant is was, at the time, by the way, closely connected with Jerry Brown, who had just been elected governor of California. This is back in the 70s. This is back, I'm going to say, 72. I believe that's when this happened. It could be 74. I think 74, forgive me, 1974. Because this is when Huey Newton went into exile, 74 to 77, forgive me. So 1974, Jerry Brown had just been elected governor. Fred Heastand is a person who was close to him. Betty Van Patter went to Fred Heastand and said, I can't do this. Fred Heastand said, talk to Elaine Brown. Elaine Brown is the Black Panther member who was running the Panther Party while Huey Newton was in exile in Cuba. There's a lot more to say about that, too. That's fascinating. It involves Jack Nicholson. It involves who was really running the Panthers. There's a lot of fascinating history there. But the point is, Elaine Brown called Betty Van Patter, this leftist bookkeeper in, and yelled at her. Now, this is, by the way, this is admitted by Elaine Brown. Now, what happened next is not admitted. Betty Van Patter got a call. She went to a bar in Berkeley, California, near Oakland. She got in a car with somebody she was never seen again. This happened shortly after Jerry Brown was elected governor. By the way, the significance of that, Elaine Brown, who I just mentioned, no relation, except there is some relation. Elaine Brown, when she was running the Black Panthers, Jerry Brown had gone to her and had gotten the Black Panthers' support to get Brown elected governor. And I, I got to do a whole segment on this because it's absolutely fascinating. But I want I want to get the Betty Betty Van Patter story out, and I only have a few minutes before Cassandra Fairbanks joins us. So what happened was Betty Van Patter goes missing. Jer- Jerry Brown's been elected; she goes missing. There's an investigation. People being investigated, including Elaine Brown, aren't talking. They say, oh, we have no idea what happened to Betty Van Patter. And Elaine Brown had just helped get the governor of California elected. She was very close. And again, I'll go into it in another day, but basically, I'll, I'll play the audio. I'm going to tell you this, but you're not going to believe me. This is why I say I need to go into another day. Elaine Brown, according to the Black Panthers, was told she could help pick judges for the city of Oakland. And she did. And this is from the mouth of a a Black Panther. I'll play that audio clip for you someday. Because me saying it, it sounds bizarre. But what happened was Betty Van Patter, who'd been missing, after Jerry Brown was inaugurated, her body was found. She had been raped. She had been tortured. She had been murdered and thrown into the San Francisco Bay. And 
The police believe, and they still do, because I've spoken to them, that the Panthers were involved, and they believe that Panther leader, for instance, Elaine Brown, knew what was going on. Now, part of the reason they believe this, by the way, is that Huey P. Newton is said to have confessed this, that Betty Van Patter's murder, he approved it, and Elaine Brown ordered it. A journalist who's now deceased, by the way, not a right-wing journalist, a left-wing journalist who knew Huey P. Newton, said that Huey P. Newton confessed to him that he had ordered the hit on Betty Van Patter, that he had ordered her killed. Now, i got to point out, once again, David Horowitz was friends with Betty Van Patter. He knew her. And this is what caused David Horowitz to leave the left. This story of what happened to Betty Van Patter has been lost to history. PBS likes to do pieces lionizing the Black Panther Party, but they won't talk about the death of Betty Van Patter. It's disgusting. It really is. And you can see why somebody with a conscience like David Horowitz, smart guy, different than the other 60s radicals, because he did have a conscience, would not want to be associated at all with these people. That's what happened. So that's the story. And like I say, completely buried. PBS does things talking about how great the Panthers are. But they won't tell you about the woman who was tortured, raped, and their body thrown into the bay. And it's a frightening story to this day, and it needs to be exposed. 30 minutes past the hour, this is Lee Stranahan, America's Finest Reporter, making you smarter about the Black Panthers. You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Call us. I told you I was going to play that again. You're listening to Radio Stranahan, 619-924-0786. If you want to call in and talk about anything, we have Cassandra Fairbanks scheduled to join us this hour. I'm going to play now something I didn't play the entire thing of the other day. This is me in 2013 when I was in Beirut, Lebanon. And this is me talking about about three minutes. This is me talking about the Syrian refugee crisis and talking about what was going on in Syria, the Syria civil war. Now, this is 2013, before the crisis was huge. But I want to point out that what I said here in 2013, a lot of this still applies, and that's why I'm playing it for you now. So just have a listen. This is what I said in 2013 about Syria, and think how much of this still applies. And by the way, this is before anybody in this country was talking about ISIS, before the Syrian refugee crisis became the huge crisis it is today. But look, when I went over there, it was obvious what was going on. So look, look, this is me, 2013, talking about Syria. This is Lee Stranahan reporting from Beirut, Lebanon. And I'd like to ask a real basic question now, one you might be asking yourself if you're an American, which is who cares? Why do I care about what's going on in Syria, in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Turkey? Uh, How does this affect me? Most Americans, myself included, weren't really paying any attention to what was going on in Syria until President Obama started talking about shooting missiles into it. And now that it doesn't seem like he's going to do that, can we just all go back to, you know, watching football and trying to figure out what Miley Cyrus is going to do next? 
I think there's two reasons that this is a really important issue for Americans. Number one, there is a crisis going on with Christians being religiously cleansed in the Middle East. We've seen this happen in Iraq because of the Iraq War. We've seen this happen in Egypt because of the Arab Spring, where the Coptic Christians have been killed and driven from Egypt. We've seen this happen now in Syria. And we've seen it even happen in places like uh, Libya. So this is a real problem. The Pope has talked about it. The religious leaders I've interviewed here have talked about it. It's a real crisis. That's one reason. If you're a Christian, uh, or even if you just care about the influence of Christians in the Middle East, you should care about it because it's a destabilizing thing that's happening trying to cleanse the Christians. But the second reason is that there's a gigantic humanitarian crisis that isn't looming. I, I was going to say it's looming, but it's here right now, actually. As I mentioned in another video, over a million Syrians have left Syria and come into Lebanon, a city of four and a half million, a city that can't really afford, you know, a state, uh, a country of four and a half million, forgive me. They can't really afford it. And almost equal numbers have gone into Jordan and Turkey. Now, Europe has taken on some refugees. They're bragging about taking on 5,000 in England, for instance. But people are fleeing Syria at the rate of 10,000 a day, they're saying. Because these countries can't really afford to do this, this is going to be an issue that comes back on the West very soon. Something's going to have to happen because of this. Something's going to have to happen. And so those are the two main reasons that I think it's going to affect you. The press right now really isn't covering it. They're content to move on uh, to the next story. But this is why it's a looming story that I think is really important. And, you know, the other, the other reason, obviously, is it gets back to the de destabilization. Uh, we're seeing the rise of al-Qaeda again in the Middle East. And al-Qaeda wants to plant a foothold in Syria, and they've already done so. So that's the, if I, if I had to add a third reason that's ultra scary, that's what it is. I don't like to throw in hype, but that is an issue, and it's another reason why I think you should care. Until next time, I'm Lee Stranahan. There you go. That's me in 2013 talking about what was going on in Syria and saying, look, this is going to be a big problem, and it sure is, and it has affected things. Now, joining us on the line is... As I mentioned before, the fabulous Cassandra Fairbanks. Cassandra, how are you doing today? Hey, good. How are you? Uh, good. Good. So now this affected where I was, I was just playing that before you came on uh, because I was talking in 2013 about how this would come back and affect things. And this certainly affected your week when the Russian ambassador to Turkey was assassinated basically on live video. It's amazing footage. You rarely see uh, so cl clearly, I guess, an assassination like that. Um, but it was specifically over what's happening in Syria, and specifically they brought up the city of Aleppo. So how did that affect your your week? That really put a, cr a crimp in your plans for the day, right? This is a big story for you, correct? <laughs> Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, we were all working on various breaking news stories about it. Um, we don't have that many writers, so it was pretty intense. Um, As, yeah. And so let's just let's just tell people you you write for Sputnik, which is yes. Russian, correct? Right, correct. 
And so you spend a lot of time, I assume, with Vladimir Putin hacking things, <laughs> totally. correct? That's, that's something yeah, you do Warriors a lot of. Yeah, just accused me of basically being a Russian agent, so apparently that's a thing now. <laughs> that's okay, because um, I think Donald Trump's a Russian agent, too. So you're, you're in yeah, decent I'm company. Yeah, I'm in big company, for sure. Well, um, it's definitely well, a lot more interesting than my job actually is. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's one reason I think that uh, that's one reason I wanted to have you on. Um, the anti-Russian sentiment is I've, is crazy. I've never I have not seen anything like it post Cold yeah. War. I don't know how else to put it. It's a little. I, I mean, it's a little concerning. <laughs> It is, and, I mean, and so uh, so how so how are you dealing with it? And how is it affecting you? What are you seeing? How do you how do you see this new? Uh, it's not even a red scare, because as far as I know, they're not communists anymore. Am I correct? Am I did I miss something? Right. They're not. No, you're correct. It, it's the USSR is not a thing anymore. It's now the Russian Federation, and they're not communists. So. I, the Democrats seem to like them more when they were communists. I'm not sure yeah, what happened. It's, I, it's crazy. I mean, when I, I've been working for Sputnik for about a year and a half, and I've never had any real issues with people, like, getting upset that I write there or anything like that. And now everything I say and do is being picked apart like Russia did it, you know? And I mean, I've never been to Russia. I don't cover Russian politics generally. I mean, this week was an exception. I had to write about the ambassador. But um, generally, I cover U.S. politics. It's the same thing that I write at every other outlet that I freelance for. (laughs) I mean, it hasn't been an issue. And now all of a sudden, I mean, Reuters put out this whole, like, hit piece on me just because I had made an offhanded comment on a podcast <laughs> like weeks ago and they just put it out yesterday and it's this whole thing about a Russian conspiracy and basically I'm an agent of the Kremlin now apparently according to Reuters it's, uh, it's very interesting well and and yeah so let's talk about that because it, it is interesting and uh, I I think part of it has to do so first off, let's get this clear. So you write for a, a Sputnik, say Russian publication, and they're doing a Correct. very it's a very it's a very stealthy operation by calling themselves <laughs> Sputnik. They don't make it clear at all that there might be some <laughs> association. I mean, it's it's that's as that's as Russian a name as you're going to get. As you know, yeah, Mirna I mean, it's not whatever. a secret that it's Russian. It's <laughs> you know. Russian outlet, but I mean, I'm the only person there who likes Donald Trump, which is like something I find absolutely hilarious because we're being like we're being accused of pushing Donald Trump or whatever. I'm literally the only person at the outlet who doesn't hate him. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, basically this whole thing is hinging on me, and it's like I'm just one person there. You guys, (laughs) my editor loves Hillary Clinton. Well, Very last strange. hour I came up with the idea. Last hour I came up with the idea that maybe we need the word Russophobe. Maybe that's what we need. Is uh, Russophobe needs to be part of the vocabulary <laughs> because what they're doing 
is they're making it that if you say anything, so like for instance, um, when I look at the situation, this goes back to when I went to Lebanon in 2013 and looked at the Syria situation in Syria. Before this is before Russia was heavily involved. They were clearly on Assad's side, but they hadn't really put troops in or manpower in, right? But um, I looked at it, and I was like, ah, the U.S. is not on the right side of this, and Russia seems to be. Yeah, if, if you're going to pick a side in Syria, picking the side of the jihadist seems like a bad move. But I have people now, if I try to quote – I'm not going to name names, but if I, if I try to quote – a story from RT, which is also very stealthy operation, Russia Today, the RT <laughs> yeah. network. Um, I'm supposed to not do that. I'm supposed to not mention anything about RT. And I don't understand it because I, I quote the New York Times. I quote the Washington right. Post. I, I quote sources. If, 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 if somebody says something and it's true, I quote it. And I don't think that's weird, but now they've made it so that if you say anything and then you've had people like, I believe Van Jones, they're throwing around patriotism terms like, oh, well, we're not supposed to be, you know, like, like you're unpatriotic. It's just bizarre. Now, a lot of this has to do with this Russian uh, hacking scandal, the alleged Russian hacking scandal. How do Which, you see that? Way, too? How's that affecting? Yeah, go ahead. Well, 71% of people, like there's a new poll that just came out, um, I believe yesterday, might have been Monday, but I think it was yesterday, um, it said only 29% of Americans said that they know with near certainty that Russia is responsible for hacking DNC death emails. And I mean, this has been going, like the press has been pushing this down everybody's throats. The politicians have been pushing this, well, the polit Democratic politicians at least, and, you know, people like John McCain have been, like, forcing this on everyone, and people still don't believe it. You know, it's 71% of people are like, this is crap. So Well, and, and I have a story I'm working on. I, I, I can't get into all the details now, but I have a source who confirmed for me that key in Republicans – who are involved with it. I'm, I'm just picking what I say here carefully. But it's a, it's a solid source, speaking on background, who says that key Republican politicians have not been briefed at all. They confirmed this for me. Have not been briefed at all on what the information is that got leaked to the Washington Post. Well, yeah, they, the, the CIA so, was supposed to give them an intelligence briefing last week, and they were no-shows. That, that's right. And, and it goes further than that. They're saying they're not going to brief them until after the president's ordered review has come out, which is going to come out probably right around January 19th, like right yeah. just minutes, like on, on the way to the inauguration. And so right. I, I view it as I, I view it as and I've had other people disagree with me on this, but I view it as an attempt not just to discredit Trump. But also to discredit Russia, because I think when Trump comes in, he's already made it clear that, you know, Russia's fighting the jihadists in Syria, and we should join them in fighting al-Qaeda, um, which I think the American people would, would agree with. I think the American people would go, 
wait, we're what? Are, we're not fighting Al Qaeda in Syria? Wait, what? And um, right. if you read RT, if you read RT, or if you read the Syrian news agency, the people we call rebels, they call terrorists, and I think their description is more right. So, I mean, now have you covered that stuff at all? Or you, I know you, I know you know a little bit about Anonymous, for instance. So you know something about uh, the the world of cyber security and hacking and everything. Have you covered the the Russian the allegations of Russian hacking and all? Yeah, I have. I've been on that pretty hard because I mean it's insane. First of all, John Podesta was the target of a phishing attack. He's an idiot. It was just an elementary thing that, you know, a high school kid who was bored could have looked up the instructions on how to do, you know. It didn't need to be some state actor to do it. It's Anybody can send out a phishing email. And his password was password one or something, for goodness sake. I mean, this wasn't yeah. – it didn't take an expert hacker to even – do that, you know. And then, as far as the DNC, WikiLeaks has come out repeatedly saying that it was an internal leak, it was not a hack. Um, it was a former British ambassador, I believe, just spoke to the Daily Mail on record, I think last week, saying that he had personally got the information from a source in a wooded area by, like, American University in D.C., and that he had flown out and got the information to WikiLeaks. So, I mean, this is not, it's not some international conspiracy. It's it, a Bernie supporter, most likely, who was pissed off that he was getting screwed and sent the information to WikiLeaks. <laughs> I mean, well, it's also sometimes the simplest explanation is right. Well, yeah, and all the stuff that the, the Post reported, none of that had to do with the Podesta leak. None of it had to do with that. It all had to do with the DNC hack. That's the one where they say Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear were the groups behind it. They don't mention the Podesta hack at all in that, which, like you say, was a phishing attack, which is where somebody gets – I mean, it's it's got the same sophistication as, hello, your Nigerian bank account has a million dollars in it. Right, exactly. Right. And and so – no, do do you think part of it's an attempt to demonize Russia, or do you think it's all just Trump hate? No, I think it's absolutely. I don't know what it is with this Russia hate. I mean, that's what Hillary Clinton was running. Her whole campaign was leading up to her taking over the presidency and going to war with Russia. Like, I mean, she brought up Russia in like every single speech, every debate. It was crazy. It was stuff that I would have expected from, you know, Republican Party before Trump. <laughs> it was, it it was reverse. It's why I loved Trump so much. Well, um, and not just that, but but we're literally we have tanks now with NATO that we had not had before, and this just happened this past week, and it got buried in the press. I saw one report on on NBC. I'm sure it got mentioned other places. But the U.S. has tanks now going up against Russia, and even in situations like the Ukraine. I've looked into it. I spent a great deal of time doing research on this. And I'm going to say the situation in Ukraine is more complex than the American press is getting. Um, It is not the case that 
Russia simply went in and is forcing Ukraine to do something. There are plenty of Ukrainians who feel that they are part of Russia. They feel part of Russia. They don't feel part of the EU, and they don't want to be be part of the EU. And so um, I'm not going to adjust it because I think where it gets a little squirrely is – the crackdown may have been harsh or there may have been, you know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. So I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to say, I'm not asking you to comment on that part, but I, but I'm not going to say that Russia has done nothing wrong there and everything Russia did is okay. But what I will say for sure is that the story that we're getting in America, when you look into it yourself, when you do the research, it is not this one-sided thing where like, Germany invades Poland or anything like that. That's the way it's been made out to be. It's like Russia just invaded Ukraine and was horrible. When you look into it, there's clearly Ukrainians, lots of them, who welcomed uh, Russia into Ukraine. Um, right. Nothing yeah. is ever, yeah. you know, black and white or good or good or bad. You know, there's always shades of gray and middle ground and nuance that. I feel like a lot of the media outlets here uh, tend to skip over. (laughs) And, you know, it's important to have that kind of context when you're looking at anything. I mean, not even just Russia and Ukraine. When you look at anything, you have to look at what's happening around it. And I feel like that's been pretty lost in a lot of the coverage. Now, you were were a Bernie Sanders supporter up until he... Was no longer a candidate, right? You're a Sanders supporter, um, right? I, I mean, so I warmed you, to Trump before he was out, but um, I wasn't putting on my Trump hat until Bernie was officially out. Yeah, yeah. No, now, what do you think about the talk about fake news and how Facebook might start regulating fake news for just you as a journalist? And I, I'm asking you specifically. The reason I bring up you're a Bernie supporter is you're not like a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. I mean, I, I know you. So you'll giggle if I say you're a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. But any, for anybody who's just listening, you're, you're, not, that's not, you're not that girl, right? And so right. But what, do you, what do you think as a journalist, as a, as a writer, when you hear this talk about fake news and how social media and Google and Facebook might start regulating it, basically? I think that it's really horrifying. I think this is one of the worst situations that I could possibly imagine for the First Amendment. And I think that the First Amendment is probably the most, one of the most important things in our Constitution. So um, it's, it's horrifying to me. Um, for example, one of my articles is getting attacked. Um, I, I also write for We Are Change, and I published an article on there um, last week. And people have been sending in complaints and calling it fake news. And so our uh, ad companies are threatening to pull down the ads off the whole site. And the article is not fake news. I cite a bill exactly as it's written. I got comments from Justin Amash. I got comments from Rand Paul's senior aide. I mean, it's a legitimate story. And um, they're, they're threatening to take it down and literally it, the story was about fake news and they're calling it fake news but I quoted lawmakers I, it went through two editors it went through a copy editor and it went through a secondary editor um, 
it's it just it's scary because it's I mean this is something that a lawmaker had brought to me and asked me to write about saying that it needed some light shined on it and I did it and, and, what, what, <laughs> and then they're the, calling what, that fake news. What, so what's the story? What was the story that you reported? It was um, part of the an intelligence bill that was aiming to basically criminal, criminalize Russian propaganda, which is, you know, my job. I mean, I don't write pro- I don't write propaganda, but for all intents and purposes, what they were aiming to do, they were calling it propaganda, and um, it was basically a slippery slope to criminalizing fake news. And so I wrote about it, and I outlined like how this uh, war on Russian media would turn into a slippery slope, or would turn into a problem for so-called fake news. Because, you know, look at what the Washington Post did, you know, citing this expert, which was actually a shadowy anonymous group that labeled like 200 websites Russian propaganda, including Drudge. Um, so I had, I had wrote about it because there was suspicious timing for this being added to the bill. Um, it came out, it was put in two days before the Washington Post published that like weird story about um, you know, Drudge and WikiLeaks and everybody being Russian propaganda. So uh, I just wrote about it. I quoted the bill. I talked to Justin Amash. I talked to people from Rand Paul's office and put it out. Didn't think anything of it. And then, like, a week later, it just started getting attacks, and now all our advertisers are threatening to pull us. So it's been well, fun. Now, and I'm just, now I'm just going to ask you, for your gut reaction on this, because again, you're a, you're a, I've known you for several years. When I knew you, when I first met you, people, some people know the story. If they've listened to the great episode with you on making the news, we talk about this. But when you and I first met, we hated each other's guts, and you were it was on the Steubenville rape story, and you were an mm-hmm. activist on the side of anonymous at the side, and I was just trying to get the facts of the story and I did not like what anonymous was doing. So you're right. a, you're a you're a longtime progressive. Is that fair to say that that a term we can use yes. about you? I Are wouldn't you say that I am anymore. <laughs> well, but let's talk about that. So are you are you shocked when you see progressives going along with this Russian propaganda? I mean, I mean, is it surprising? Because it is honestly, I'm a, I'm a former leftist. It has shocked me how people. It's, I I, I understood when Bernie, <laughs> I understood when Bernie supporters went for Hillary to some extent because I'm like, okay, well, you know, the re- reality, you know, Jenk uh, Ungair from Young Turks was like, look, Bernie was my guy, but Hillary's better than Trump. I'm going to go with her. I got that. That makes at least rational sense to me, right? You can agree or disagree, but it's at least a, a rational position. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're going all in, uh, progressives, I just don't get it. So, I mean, how do, you, how do you feel about that? I feel like they're very easily manipulated. <laughs> I feel like a lot of the things that I personally believed were a lie, and once I realized that 
I kind of started looking at everything really skeptically and realizing that a lot of things that I was being fed and that I was feeding other people were simply untrue. And I feel like they just get caught up in this, like, addiction to being outraged and and Russia and fake news are the current target. But it doesn't make any sense, and I feel like they're not thinking critically. Like, the reason I was on the left is because I felt like the left were the ones who were anti-war and who supported free speech and the freedom to protest and these, like, great fundamental things that are these rights that are so important. And now they're not. You know, they're calling the, they're calling the police over people writing vote Trump in chalk, and they're calling for, you know, everyone on the planet who disagrees with them to be censored online. And it's just, it's a very disappointing, um, very disappointing thing to watch. It's kind of been bothering me a lot, (laughs) obviously, but I don't know how to go so far. Well, no, it should bother you because you and I were hanging out at the at the uh, uh, Republican National Convention, which we were both covering. And there was one point mm-hmm. you and I were both covering a protest march, and I saw you. This was not conjecture. I saw you threatened by one of the protesters. They knew who you were. They said something to you that, which I'm not going to repeat, but they said something that indicated they knew who you were, and they were threatening you. And I saw this happen, yeah. and they singled you out. We were the only people there. This person walked, said, said something to you. So it's very real. Was there like a watershed moment? You say you feel like you were lied to. Was there like a, a, a singular event that happened, or was it a, a drip, drip, drip sort of thing? It's, I guess it's kind of a drip, 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 but I can identify like some of the biggest moments where I was like, this is everything that I'm covering is a lie, you know, or just wrong, or, you know, the left has lost their mind. Like, when um, the chocolating happening happened, that was one of the first moments where I was like, wow, these people are really against free speech. Like, if you're not for free speech for people you disagree with, you're not for it at all. And they were calling, like, vote Trump hate speech, and I was just like, this is madness. So I started kind of paying more attention to um, more writers on the right and I started following more people who, you know, supported Trump and things like that. So they could get different viewpoints. And um, then when Orlando happened, everybody was calling for gun control. And um, I think I've told you, but my mom's friend, her son was shot down there. So I was getting these real-time updates from the hospital, from somebody who was actually a victim. And it was a little emotional. So I had tweeted out something calling him a terrorist the shooter and um, people started jumping down my throat, essentially defending the terrorist and saying like, Oh, you wouldn't be calling him a terrorist if he was white and all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, these people have lost their goddamn minds. And, you know, I was watching coworkers, not at Sputnik, but at other places that I wrote like Teen Vogue and uh, bipartisan report and addicting info. I was watching my coworkers really misrepresent things that Donald Trump was saying that I agreed with and take it out of context and, um, you know, just cut down little snippets of his speeches. And I was like, this is wrong. Like, if you actually listen to the whole thing that he said, it was actually 
it makes sense. And people would be like, oh, it doesn't matter. We just need to win. And yeah. there was a lot of that. I mean, when I was writing for uh, U.S. Uncut, they would change my headlines and make them completely false. And then when I would try and stand up and argue it, they would be like, yeah, too bad. This is how we make money. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't want to be part of that. And that's why I left there. And um, there's just a lot of a lot of little moments, I guess. Yeah, well, it is very – having gone through some of that myself, it's very disheartening. Uh, unless you've gone through it, it's – you feel betrayed. I don't know how else to put it. You feel like – yeah, like a sucker. I don't know how else to put it. You feel like, well, wait a minute. You know, when media – for me, it was when Media Matters started attacking me as being racist. And it was yeah, after I, mean, I called – Yeah, I people me. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. For being racist? Yeah, people are calling me racist and sexist, and I'm like, I'm a Puerto Rican woman. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, it's it's insane. Anyway, Cassandra, it's great having you on, and I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. We're out of time for the episode right now, but but thanks a lot for being on. Till next time, everybody. This is Radio Stranahan. I'm Lee Stranahan. Thanks. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.